0: CHAPTER Seventeen OF DREAD A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp by Harriet Beecher Stowe This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano DREAD Chapter 17 Uncle John, about four miles east of Canema, lay the plantation of Nina's uncle, whither Harry had been sent on the morning which we have mentioned. The young man went upon his errand in no very enviable mood of mind. Uncle Jack, as Nina always called him, was the nominal guardian of the estate, and a more friendly and indulgent one. Harry could not have desired. He was one of those joyous, easy souls whose leading desire seemed to be that everybody in the world should make himself as happy as possible, without fatiguing him with consultations as to particulars. His confidence in Harry was unbounded, and he esteemed it a good fortune that it was so, as he was wont to say, laughingly, that his own place was more than he could manage like all gentlemen who make the study of their own ease a primary consideration. Uncle Jack found the whole course of nature dead set against him. For, as all creation is evidently organized with a view to making people work, it follows that no one has so much care as the man who resolves not to take any. Uncle Jack was systematically, and as a matter of course, cheated and fleeced by his overseers, by his negroes and the poor whites of his vicinity, and worst of all, continually hectored and lectured by his wife therefore. Nature or destiny, or whoever the lady may be that deals the matrimonial cards, with her usual thoughtfulness and balancing opposites, had arranged that jovial, easy, care hating Uncle John should have been united to a most undaunted and ever active spirit of enterprise and resolution who never left anything quiet in his vicinity. She it was who continually disturbed his repose by constantly ferreting out and bringing before his view all the plots, treasons, and conspiracies with which plantation life is ever abounding, bringing down on his devoted head the necessity of discriminations, decisions, and settlements most abhorrent to an easy man." The fact was, the responsibility, aggravated by her husband's negligence, had transformed the worthy woman into a sort of domestic dragon of the Hesperides, and her good helpmeet declared that he believed she never slept, nor meant anybody else should. It was all very well, he would observe. He wouldn't quarrel with her, for walking the whole night long, or sleeping with her head out of the window, watching the smoke house. For stealing out after one o'clock to convict Pompey or circumvent Cuff, if she only wouldn't bother him with it, suppose the half of the hams were carried off between two and three, and sold to Abijah Skinflint for rum, he must have his sleep, and if he had to pay for it in ham, why he'd pay for it in ham, but sleep he must and would, and supposing he really believed in his own soul that Cuffy. "'who came in the morning with a long face "'to announce the theft "'and to propose measures of discovery, "'was in fact the main conspirator. "'What then?' "'He couldn't prove it on him. "'Cuff had gone astray from the womb, "'speaking lies ever since he was born. "'And what would be the use "'of his fretting and sweating himself to death "'to get truth out of Cuff? "'No, no. "'Mrs. G., as he commonly called his helpmeet, "'might do that sort of thing.' she mustn't bother him about it. Not that Uncle Jack was invariable in his temper. Human nature has its limits, and a personage who finds mischief still for idle hands to do, often seems to take a malicious pleasure in upsetting the temper of idle gentlemen. So, Uncle Jack, though confessedly the best fellow in the world, was occasionally subject to a tropical whirlwind of passion in which he would stamp, tear, and swear, with astounding energy, and in those ignited moments, all the pent-up sorrows of his soul would fly about him, like red-hot shot in every direction. And then he would curse the negroes, curse the overseers, curse the plantation, curse Cuff and Pomp and Dina, curse the poor white folks round, curse Mr. Abijah Skinflint, and declare that he would send them, and the niggers, all severally to a department which politeness forbids us to mention, he would pour out awful threats of cutting up, skinning alive, and selling to Georgia. To all which commotion and bluster the Negroes would listen, rolling the whites of their eyes and sticking their tongues in their cheeks, with an air of great satisfaction and amusement, because experience had sufficiently proved to them that nobody had ever been cut up, skinned alive, or sent to Georgia." as the result of any of these outpourings. So, when Uncle Jack had one of these fits, they treated it as hands do an approaching thunderstorm, run under cover and waited for it to blow over. As to Madam Gordon, her wrath was another affair, and her threats they had learned to know generally meant something. Though it very often happened that, in the dispensation of most needed justice, Uncle Jack, if in extra good humor would rush between the culprit and his mistress, and bear him off in triumph, at the risk of most serious consequences to himself afterwards. Our readers are not to infer from this that Madame Gordon was really, and naturally, an ill-natured woman. She was only one of that denomination of vehement housekeepers, who are to be found the world over, women to whom is appointed the hard mission of combating, single-handed, for the principles of order and exactness, against the whole world in arms. Had she had the good fortune to have been born in Vermont or Massachusetts, she would have been known through the whole village as a woman who couldn't be cheated half a cent on a pound of meat, and had instinctive knowledge whether a cord of wood was too short or a pound of butter too light. But such a woman at the head of the disorderly rabble of a plantation, with a cheating overseer, surrounded by thieving poor whites, whom the very organization of society leaves no resource but thieving, with a never mind husband, with land that has seen its best days, and is fast running to barrenness, you must not too severely question her temper, if it should not be at all times in perfect subjection. In fact, Madame Gordon's cap habitually bristled with horror, and she was rarely known to sit down. Occasionally, it is true, she alighted upon a chair but was in a moment up again to pursue some of her household train, or shout, at the top of her lungs, some caution toward the kitchen. When Harry reined up his horse before the plantation, the gate was thrown open for him by old Pomp, a superannuated negro, who reserved this function as his peculiar sinecure. "'Lord, bless you, Harry, that you? Bless you. You ought fur to see us, mazer, such a gale up to the house.' What's the matter, Pomp? Why, master, he done got one of he fits. Tearin' round, dar, fit to split. stompin' up and down to Randy, swearin' like mad. Lord, if he ain't, he done got Jake tied up, dar. Swears he's goin' to cut him to pieces. He, he, he has so. Got Jake tied up, dar. ho! Oh, oh, oh. real curious. And he's blowin' hisself out there mighty hard, I tell you. So if you want to get word with him, "'You can't do it till he done got through with this a year.' And the old man ducked his pepper-and-salt-colored head and chuckled with a lively satisfaction. As Harry rode slowly up the avenue to the house, he caught sight of the portly figure of its master, stamping up and down the veranda, vociferating and gesticulating in the most violent manner. He was a corpulent man of middle age, with a round, high forehead, set off with grizzled hair. His blue eyes, fair, rosy, fat-face, his mouth adorned with brilliant teeth, gave him, when in good humor, the air of a handsome and agreeable man. At present his countenance was flushed almost to purple, as he stood storming from his rostrum at a saucy, ragged negro, who, tied to the horse-post, stood the picture of unconcern, while a crowd of negro men, women, and children were looking on. "'I'll teach you,' he vociferated, shaking his fist. "'I won't, won't bear it of you, you dog, you. You won't take my orders, won't you? I'll kill you. That I will. I'll cut you up into pieces.' "'No, you won't, and you know you won't,' interposed Mrs. Gordon, who sat at the window behind him. "'You won't, and you know you won't, and they know you won't, too. It will all end in smoke, as it always does.' i only wish you wouldn't talk and threaten because it makes you ridiculous hold your tongue too i'll be a master in my own house i say infernal dog i say cuff cut him up why don't you go at him give it to him what are you waiting for if master pleases said cuff rolling up his eyes and making a deprecating gesture if i please well I'll blast you i do please go at him thrash him stay i'll come myself and seizing a cowhide which lay near him, he turned up his cuffs and ran down the steps, but missing his footing in his zeal, came head first against the very post where the criminal was tied there I hope now you are satisfied. you have killed me, you have broke my head. you have I shall be laid up a month all for you, you ungrateful dog, Cuffy and Sambo came to the rescue, raised him up carefully and began brushing the dust off his clothes, smothering the laughter with which they seemed ready to explode, while the culprit at the post seemed to consider this an excellent opportunity to put in his submission. "'Please, master, do forgive me. I told them to go out, and they said they wouldn't. I didn't mean no harm when I said master had better go hisself, cause I think so now. Master had better go. Them folks is curious, and they won't go for none of us.' They just acts ridiculous, they does. I didn't mean for to be sarcin or nothing, I say. Again, if Master will take his horse and go over there, Master drive those folks out. And nobody else can't do it. We don't can't do it. They just sars us. Now, for my heavenly Master, all this here is the truth. I've been telling the Lord the Master knows it is. And if Master will take his horse and ride down there, he'd see so. So dere, just as I've been telling, Master, I didn't mean no harm at all. I didn't. The quarrel, it must be told, related to the ejecting of a poor white family which had squatted, as the phrase is, in a deserted cabin on a distant part of the Gordon plantation. Mrs. Gordon's untiring assiduity, having discovered this fact, she left her husband no peace till something was undertaken in the way of ejectment. He accordingly commissioned Jake, a stout negro, on the morning of the present day, to go over and turn them off. Now Jake, who inherited to the full the lofty contempt with which the plantation negro regards the poor white folks, started upon his errand, nothing loth, and whistled his way in high feather, with two large dogs at his heels. But, when he found a miserable, poor, sick woman surrounded by four starving children, Jake's mother's milk came back to him. And, instead of turning them out, he actually pitched a dish of cold potatoes in among them, which he picked up in a neighboring cabin, with about the same air of contemptuous pity with which one throws scraps to a dog. And then, meandering his way back to the house, informed his master that he couldn't turn the white trash out and if he wanted them turned out, he would have to go hisself. Now, we all know that a fit of temper has very often nothing to do with the thing which appears to give rise to it. When a cloud is full charged with electricity, it makes no difference which bit of wire is put in. The flash and the thunder come one way as well as another. Mr. Gordon had received troublesome letters on business, a troublesome lecture from his wife, his corn cake had been overdone at breakfast, and his coffee burned bitter, besides which he had a cold in his head coming on, and there was a settlement brewing with the overseer. In consequence of all which things, though Jake's mode of delivering himself wasn't a whit more saucy than ordinary, the storm broke upon him then and there, enraged as we have described. The heaviest part of it, however, being now spent, Mr. Gordon consented to pardon the culprit on condition that he would bring him up his horse immediately, when he would ride over and see if he couldn't turn out the offending parties. He pressed Harry, who was rather a favorite of his, into the service, and, in the course of a quarter of an hour, they were riding off in the direction of the squatter's cabin. It's perfectly insufferable what we proprietors have to bear from this tribe of creatures, he said. There ought to be hunting parties. Gotta up chase them down and exterminate them just as we do rats. It would be a kindness to them. The only thing you can do for them is to kill them. As for charity, or that kind of thing, you might as well throw victuals into the hollow logs as to try to feed them. The government ought to pass laws. We will have laws, somehow or other, and get them out of the state. And, so discoursing, the good man at length arrived before the door of the miserable, decaying log cabin out of whose glassless windows dark emptiness looked, as out of the eye-holes of a skull. Two scared, cowering children disappeared round the corner as he approached. He kicked open the door and entered. Crouched on a pile of dirty straw, sat the miserable, haggard woman, with large, wild eyes, sunken cheeks, disheveled, matted hair, and long, lean hands, like bird's claws. At her skinny breast. An emaciated infant was hanging, pushing, with its little skeleton hands, as if to force the nourishment which nature no longer gave, and two scared-looking children, the features wasted and pinched blue with famine, were clinging to her gown. The whole group huddled together, drawing as far as possible away from the newcomer, looked up with large, frightened eyes, like hunted wild animals. "'What you here for?' was the first question of Mr. Gordon." but in no very decided tone, for, if the truth must be told, his combativeness was oozing out. The woman did not answer, and after a pause, the youngest child piped up in a shrill voice. "'Ain't that nowhere else to be?' "'Yes,' said the woman. "'We camped on Mr. Durant's place, and Bob Field, him as the overseer, pulled down the cabin right over our head, appears like we couldn't get nowhere.' "'Where is your husband?' "'Gone looking for work. "'Appears like he couldn't get none anywhere. "'Appears like nobody wants us. "'We've got to be somewhere, though,' said the woman, "'in a melancholy, apologetic tone. "'We can't die, as I see. "'I wish we could.' "'Mr. Gordon's eye fell upon two or three cold potatoes "'and a piece of broken crock, "'over which the woman appeared keeping jealous guard. "'What you doing with those potatoes?' "'Saving them for the children's dinner? "'And is that all you've got to eat? "'I want to know,' said Mr. Gordon in a high, sharp tone, "'as if he were getting angry very fast. "'Yes,' said the woman. "'What did you have to eat yesterday?' "'Nothing,' said the woman. "'And what did you eat the day before?' "'Found some old bones round the nigger houses, "'and some on gave us some corn cake.' Why the devil didn't you send up to my house and get some bacon? Picking up bones, slop, and swill round the nigger huts? Why didn't you send up for some ham and some meal? Lord bless you! You don't think Madame Gordon is a dog to bite you, do you? Wait here till I send you down something fit to eat. Just end in my having to take care of you, I see. And if you're going to stay here, there will be something to be done to keep the rain out. There now. "'he said to Harry, as he was mounting his horse. "'Just see what's to be made with hooks in one's back like me. "'Everybody hangs on to me, of course. "'Now there's Durant turns off these folks. "'There's Peters turns them off. "'Well, what's the consequence? "'They come and litter down on me, "'just because I am an easy, soft-hearted old fool. "'It's too devilish bad. "'They breed like rabbits. "'What God Almighty makes such people for, I don't know. "'I suppose he does.' But there's these poor, miserable trash of children like sixty, and there's folks living in splendid houses, dying for children, and can't have any. If they manage one or two, the scarlet fever or whooping cough makes off with them. Lord bless me, things go on in a terrible mixed-up way in this world. And then, what upon earth am I to say to Mrs. G? I know what she'll say to me. She'll tell me she told me so. That's what she always says." "'I wish she'd go and see them herself. I, "'I do so. "'Mrs. G is the nicest kind of a woman. "'No mistake about that. "'But she is an awful deal of energy, that woman. "'It's dreadful fatiguing to a quiet man like me. "'Dreadful. "'But I'm sure I don't know what I should do without her. "'She'll be down upon me about this woman. "'But the woman must have some ham. "'That's flat. "'Cold potatoes and old bones.' "'Pretty story. Such people have no business to live at all. "'But, if they will live, they ought to eat Christian things. "'There goes Jake. I couldn't he turn him off before I saw him. "'It would have saved me all this plague. "'Dog knew what he was about when he got me down here. "'Jake! Oh, Jake! Jake! Come here!' Jake came shambling along up to his master, "'with an external appearance of the deepest humility.' under which was too plainly seen to lurk a facetious air of waggish satisfaction. Here, you, Jake, you get a basket. Yes, mazza," said Jake, with an air of provoking intelligence. Be still saying yes, mazza, and hear what I've got to say, mind yourself. Jake gave a side glance of inexpressible drollery at Harry, and then stood like an ebony statue of submission. You go to your missus, and ask her for the key of the smokehouse, and bring it to me. Yes, sir, and you tell your missus to send me a peck of meal, stay a loaf of bread, or some biscuit, or corn cake, or anything else which may happen to be baked up. Tell her I want them sent out right away. Jake bowed and disappeared. Now we may as well ride down this path while he is gone for the things. Mrs. G will blow off on him first, so that rather less of it will come upon me. I wish I could get her to see them herself. Lord bless her. She is a kind-hearted woman enough, but she thinks there's no use doing, and there ain't. She is right enough about it. But then, as the woman says, there must be some place for them to be in the world. The world is wide enough, I'm sure. Plague, take it. Why can't we pass a law to take them all in with our niggers, and then they'd have someone to take care of them? Then we'd do something for them, and there'd be some hope of keeping them comfortable. Harry felt in no wise, inclined to reply to any of this conversation, because he knew that, though nominally addressed to him, the good gentleman was talking merely for the sake of easing his mind, and that he would have opened his heart just as freely to the next hickory bush if he had not happened to be present. So he let him expend himself, waiting for an opportunity to introduce subjects which lay nearer his heart. In a convenient pause he found opportunity to say, Miss Nina sent me over here this morning. "'Ah, Nin, my pretty little Nin. Bless the child, she did. "'Why couldn't she come over herself and comfort an old fellow's heart? "'Nin is the prettiest girl in the county. "'I tell you that, Harry. Miss Nina is in a good deal of trouble. "'Master Tom came home last night drunk, "'and today he is so cross and contrary she can't do anything with him.' "'Drunk? Oh, what a sad dog. Tom gets drunk too often.' "'Carries that too far altogether. "'Told him that the last time I talked to him. "'Says I. "'Tom, it does very well for a young fellow "'to have a spree once in one or two months. "'I did it myself when I was young. "'But,' says I, "'Tom, to spree all the time won't do, Tom,' says I. "'Nobody minds a fellow being drunk occasionally. "'But he ought to be moderate about it "'and know where to stop,' says I, "'because when it all comes to that,' that he is drunk every day, or every other day. Why, it's my opinion that he may consider the devil's got him. I talked to Tom just so, right out square, because, you see, I'm in a father's place to him. But, Lord, it don't seem to have done him a bit of good. Good Lord they tell me he is drunk one half his time, and acts like a crazy creature. Goes too far, Tom does, altogether. Mrs. G ain't got any patience with him. She blasted him every time he comes here and he blasts at her, so it ain't very comfortable having him here. Good woman at heart, Mrs. Gordon, but a little strong in her ways, you know, and Tom is strong too, so it's fire fight fire when they ain't get together. It's no ways comfortable to a man wanting to have everybody happy round him. Lord bless me, I wish Nin were my daughter. Why can't she come over here and live with me? She hasn't got any more spirit in her than just what I like." "'just enough fizz in her to keep one from flatting out. "'What about this beau of hers? "'Is she going to be married?' "'Hey, there's two gentlemen there, "'attending upon Miss Nina. "'One is Mr. Carson of New York. "'Hang it all. "'She isn't going to marry a damn Yankee. "'My brother would turn over in his grave.' "'I don't think it would be necessary "'to put himself to that trouble,' said Harry, "'for I think it's Mr. Clayton "'who is to be the favored one.' "'Clayton, good blood.' "'Like that. Seems to be a gentlemanly good fellow, doesn't he?' "'Yes, sir. He owns a plantation, I'm told, in South Carolina.' "'Ah, that's well. But I hate to spare Nin. Nan. Never half like sending her off to New York. Don't believe in boarding schools. I've seen as fine girls grown on plantations as any man need want. What do we want to send our girls there to get fit penny bit ideas?' "'I thank the Lord I never was in New York.' and I never mean to be. Carolina, born and raised, I am, and my wife is Virginia, pure breed. No boarding school about her. And, when I stood up to be married to her, there wasn't a girl in Virginia could stand up with her. Her cheeks were like damask roses. A tall, straight, lively girl she was. Knew her own mind, and had a good notion of speaking it, too. And there isn't a woman, now, that can get through the business she can and have her eyes always on everything. If it does make me uncomfortable every now and then, I ought to take it, and thank the Lord for it. For, if it wasn't for her, but with the overseer, and the niggers, and the poor white trash, we should all go to the devil in a heap. Miss Nina sent me over here to be out of Master Tom's way, said Harry, after a pause. He is bent upon hectoring me as usual. You know, sir, that he always had a spite against me. It seems to grow more and more bitter. He quarrels with her about the management of everything on the place. And you know, sir, that I try to do my very best. And you and Mrs. Gordon have always been pleased to say that I did well. So we did, Harry, my boy. So we did. Stay here as long as you like. Just suit yourself about that. Maybe you'd like to go out shooting with me. Well, I'm worried, said Harry, to be obliged to be away just at the time of putting in the seed. "'Everything depends upon my overseeing.' "'Why don't you go back, then? "'Tom's ugliness is nothing but because he is drunk. "'There's where it is. "'I see through it. "'You see, when a fellow has had a drunken spree, "'why, the day after it, he is all loose ends and cross, "'nerves all raveled out, like an old stocking. "'Then fellows are sulky and surly-like. "'I've heard of their having temperance societies up in those northern states.' and I think something of that sort will be good for our young men. They get drunk too often, full a third of them. I should reckon, get the delirium tremens before they are fifty. If we could have a society like them, and that sort of thing, and agree to be moderate, nobody expects young men to be old before their time. But, if they'd agreed not to blow out more than once a month, or something in that way. I'm afraid, said Harry, Master Tom's, too far gone for that. Oh, ah, yes, pity, pity, suppose it is so. Why, when a fellow gets so far, he's like a nigger's old patch coat. You can't tell where the real cloth is. Now, Tom, I suppose he never is himself, always up on a wave or down in the trough. Hi-ho, I'm sorry. It's very hard on Miss Nina, said Harry. He interferes, and I have no power to stand for her. And yesterday, he began talking to my wife in a way I can't bear. "'Nor won't. He must let her alone. "'Show, show,' said Mr. Gordon. "'See what a boy that is now. "'That ain't in the least worthwhile. That ain't. "'I shall tell Tom so. "'And Harry, mind your temper. "'Remember, young men will be young. "'And if a fellow will treat himself to a pretty wife, "'he must expect trials. "'But Tom ought not to do so. I shall tell him. "'Hi, there comes Jake, with the basket and the smokehouse key.' Now for something to send down to those poor hobgoblins. If people are going to starve, they mustn't come on to my place to do it. I don't mind what I don't see. I wouldn't mind if the whole litter room was drowned tomorrow. But hang it. I can't stand it if I know it. So here, Jake, take this ham and bread and look him up in old skillet and see if you can't tinker up the house a bit. I'd set the fellow to work when he comes back. Only we have two hands to every turn now, and the niggers always plague him. Harry, you go home and tell Nin Mrs. G and I will be over to dinner. End of chapter seventeen. Uncle John. Recording by Greg Giordano. Newport Ritchie, Florida.